Hi there and welcome to another Careers in Health podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Joining me today is geriatrician Dr. John Endicott. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. John, what was it about geriatrics that first caught your attention? Um, in a way, geriatrics was a bit of a, um, a process of exclusion. Um, I, um, I started off considering doing a range of things as, as a medical specialty, including general practice, um, toyed with surgery for a little bit, um, and then when I deci- uh, and psychiatry. And then when I decided to do physician training, it came down to between uh, haematology and, and geriatrics, of all things. I think what attracted me to geriatrics was a, a couple of things. Firstly, when I was a med student, I worked in nursing homes and found that I had a good rapport with older people and enjoyed looking after them and, and you know, making them laugh and, and joking with them and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and I, in, in a way, I'm a bit of an old school um, doctor in that I, I enjoy using clinical skills and clinical judgment as opposed to... Uh, things like molecular medicine and, and um, you know highly advanced technologies. So um, that's probably what led me more towards it. Um, I love the science of haematology, but uh, there's a lot, there were additional exams and so forth that needed to be done. And um, yeah, I just decided no, I didn't want to do that. And it wasn't for you. Yeah, but geriatrics was always up there on the on yep. the list. Yeah. So, what does a geriatrician do? What are the sorts of clinical problems that you would see, and how does your day unfold? Okay. Uh, well, um, uh, geriat- geriatrics is is looking after all of the the, uh, the healthcare needs of older people, uh, particularly working with multidisciplinary teams in in doing that. I guess my bread and butter, the 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 things that I look at most are. Cognitive impairment, mm-hmm. um, that's by far the number one, uh, but also associated frailty syndromes. And so in at Noosa Hospital, that also uh, filters into care of inpatients with those types of problems uh, and also uh, supporting um, some of the orthopaedic surgeons in the care of their, their patients who've either had fractured NOFs or... Um, or who are having joint replacements, and particularly the frail older people, and then looking after them through rehabilitation as well. Uh, Sorry, Don. Oh, I, I also do n- nursing home visits um, and the odd um, home visits as well. So what sort of impact do you have on your patients when, you, when you're seeing them? Um, that's... Um, I think probably the major impact that I, that I have is my personal approach, mm-hmm. which brings me back to the old school thing. I, I like to be quite holistic and involve families where I can. Um, and I, I think I have as good an understanding of, um, of anyone my age of what the ageing experience is like. Yeah. And so I, I think that my um, empathy towards um, older patients in that regard, it helps me um, build a rapport with them that, that um, sometimes can be lacking with other other doctors. Yep. Um, so that's probably the number one thing that I that I bring. Um, but also, uh, I guess there are a lot of geriatric syndromes that um, treatments rather than curative, they're, they're symptomatic, or you might even think of them as palliative. Uh, so there's a different type of approach as well to, to providing care in those circumstances, yep. as opposed to a lot of conditions that people who treat younger 
patients, um, they have more disease-modifying um, medications and, and treatments at their disposal. Yeah. As people are approaching the end of their life, obviously there's some discussions starting to happen. How yeah. do you find being involved in those discussions? Uh, I that It's an interest area of mine, yeah. yet it still can be quite difficult. Uh, it's it, bec- and, and I think largely because a lot of people have not given it the reflection um, that you think they might have. Yeah. Um, even well into their 80s and even 90s, some people find that really quite confronting and if you couple that with cognitive impairment uh, sometimes broaching the subject in a more subtle way is 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 difficult um, uh, which is when you you rely on family to to be involved in those those conversations uh, but it's so it's difficult to bring up the topic and and uh, flesh out a discussion but it's it's an extremely important one and um one that I, I try and interview, um, uh, try and introduce as early as possible in my care of them, but not too early, um, so, uh, so to build the rapport with them. Yeah. How do you approach that? So for, for many of the junior doctors listening to this, talking about death and end of life yeah. with a patient that they might not necessarily know very well can be very confronting. How do you approach it? Uh, well, there's, there's actually two components for me in geriatrics yeah. to advanced care planning. Um, the hardest one is probably the advanced care planning of, of frailty um, and the years or months leading up to, up to death, um, whereas the advanced care planning that most people think about being um, the, the treatment around end-of-life care and suggesting that the person is coming towards the end of life, that's a little bit easier actually um, in, in geriatrics because yeah. I think most people internally know that they're, you know, they're coming towards the yeah. end of their time. Um, and uh, I, I'll, I'll, I, I suppose I, I am informed by what I see the, person, the person's personality type is. Um, and get a sense of whether they're someone who fears death or who understands that, that death is coming. And I, I, um, I try... Uh, the, the approach that I would take would be... Um, let me think about how I put this. Um, I, 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 I suppose I talk about um, the, the broad range of treatments that are available... And, and I, I propose options that might be available um, for people depending on what their viewpoint is. So I'll say that, that some people um, value life at, at, at all costs and want us to do everything possible to, to look after them and keep them alive, whereas there are other people who are more pragmatic and, and would rather not be on machines and, and life support and may even elect to let nature take its course in some circumstances. And then I gauge what their response is. And, and most of my patients are very much in that second group mm. and, and will state it front up. Um, every now and again, some people have already given, it a, a, given th- that um, terminal end-of-life care um, significant thought and have done things like completed advan- uh, advanced care um, sorry, uh, advanced health directives and those yeah. sorts of things yeah. um, and what I find rewarding about bringing that, that conversation up when the person is, is um, alive and relatively well is that they, um, of course they've got to be alive but <laughs> relatively <laughs> well is that um, they start to build some trust that um, whatever happens to them 
at that time of their life that I'll, I'll be there trying to make sure that their wishes um, are in place yeah. and that I understand what their, their wishes are. You mentioned reward there. What mm. are the things that you find satisfying about your practice? Oh, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of things. Um, in my clinic, um, patients will often come in um, looking and feeling quite anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, every now and again, I explore that a little bit and um, a, a surprising number think that I'm going to put them into a nursing home. Right. Um, and I don't know where that, that thought comes from, but it's, it's a, a fear that they've got. And um, to be able to have someone exit my room after the, that first consultation and you can see that they're feeling lighter and, and less anxious, that's probably the, the biggest reward. Um, but also um, seeing that you're making a difference over time to, to their well-being and, um, and that, that they're building trust in you as well. They're, they're probably the most yeah. rewarding, rewarding things. Um, yeah. Some specialties have long relationships with their patients. For example, some of the surgical specialties, they may see them for decades. Yeah. What sort of duration do you have with your patients? Um, I've, I've just started in private practice in the last uh, 18 months or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and prior to that, I was in the public system. And that longevity of, of relationship was not there or was fragmented in, in the public system um, because of the, the kind of constraints that we have on long-term follow-up. Yeah. Um, so that was something that I felt was missing as opposed to in, um, in my current practice, in, in private practice. I anticipate that, that there'll be some that, that might, might know each other for years, mm-hmm. um, but there are others where it's, it's, it's shorter because of life yeah. expectancy. And yeah. I've already had a few patients who either have died in hospital under my care or I've, I've learned have died in residential care or at, at yeah. home. Um, and there are some that only need to see me briefly and we've got an arrangement where they don't need to keep seeing me, but if problems arise in the future, they can always come back to, to see me. Yep. So um, I, I think one of the most rewarding things um, looking into the future will be that, that ongoing longer-term relationship. Yep. Uh, yeah. Is there a sadness about the death and dying process for you personally when you interact with those patients? Um, there, there can be. Um, I think it's... In medicine, it, it, it is kind of bred into us that, that we're here to save lives and improve and extend lives and those, those sorts of things. Um, I think in balance, if um, someone has died and the expect, expectation was that they were going to die, I feel um, if, if it can be as good an experience as possible for that patient and their family and particularly consistent with their wishes, I tend to feel happier rather than sad, but there's still a tinge of sadness because, you know, their life has ended, the, uh, an era within that family has, has ended, and there is always a little voice in the back of your head saying, you know, is there something we should have done differently or could have done differently? Mm. But that's just, I think that's just my personality and others may not have that, that angst. Yeah. There is a perception that we're increasingly medicalising death. Mm-hmm. Do you see that as a problem and yeah. what would you do about it? Um, I, 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 I see it as an issue. Um, I think, um, uh, I mean, I've, I've, I'm of the belief that it's, it's that death is a social um, issue rather than, um, than a health 
issue because it's it's inevitable. It's part of life. Yeah. Um, and the impacts of a death um, abroad and social and, and related to uh, families and, and neighbours and friendships and that social network mm-hmm. more than is a medical network. Uh, but that's that said, um, there are clearly medical components to it and particularly um, whether deaths were uh, avoidable and, um, and appropriately avoidable, that, that's of medical concern. Um, there, so I guess because of that, there, there has been a tendency to medicalise it and people dying in hospital and so forth. But I think there is, there is a, a bit of a movement, a social movement, if you like, to, to, in, um, to support people in dying in ways that they, they wish and in locations of their preference, such as at home. And I think as, as people get more death literate, is, is what the literature um, is the expression that's used in the literature, as people become more death literate, the ability to have those conversations and negotiate where they, they die should become easier, particularly if support services become more available. Yeah. Um, I think part of death literacy will be understanding the limitations of, of, of dying at home versus somewhere in hospital. Um, yeah. And if you can um, either accept or accommodate for that um, in, at the home, then that would be a lot better. Why do you think that society still has so much trouble talking about death and what do you think needs to happen as part of that social conversation? Um, I think, I guess death literacy probably is, is would be the, the key phrase. Yeah. Um, so it's not just what does, um, uh, it, it's not just knowing that we all die, but I guess what, what does it involve? What, uh, what are the supports that are uh, available? Um, and, and how can you um, be personally involved in caring for the person who's dying as, as well? Mm. Um, I think because it's been medicalised, if you like, in, in recent decades, um, that kind of power to care for someone who's, who's, who's dying has been handed over to health practitioners. Um, whereas uh, I think people in the community are capable of providing a lot of support um but have been disenabled in 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 some ways yeah um but that transition to to community-based death and dying um still needs a lot of support because there are a lot of medical symptoms and um and care supports that people will need in place to to be able to provide that around the clock yeah um what are the things about your specialty that you don't like? Um, are there frustrations that you find in day-to-day work? Oh, there, there are a few, um, um, uh, particularly by nature of, um, of cognitive impairment and, and, and frailty. I spend a lot of time gathering information. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and even in my clinic when family and the, the patient are available it's it's very time intensive just gathering information that from someone else who's young um, and otherwise fit but may just have one problem you can get that information really quickly um, and sometimes in, in geriatrics you've got to take different angles to 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 get that information and there's a lot of reading between the lines yeah there's a lot of family issues that come up um, so in, in private practice there's a, a lot of work 
that's that's not paid, that's outside the consultation um, and therefore outside the consultation fee that um, that is um, uh, that needs to be done. Um, and so that's and, and because they're, they're people with multiple problems as well, even finding out information about multiple problems can be a frustration. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you know you just want. Um, it's a little bit like working in a in an area where you need interpreters all the time. Sometimes you would just love to have a, con- a straightforward conversation with someone who's cognitively intact and yep. you know just keep it brief. Yep. But um, that's probably the main main frustration. Yeah. Um, there are um, sometimes uh, complex um, inpatient problems that, that take a long time uh, to resolve, and so people can be in in. Uh, as inpatients for a long time and I guess this probably happens in all specialties Mm. where um, there gets a point where it's starting to become frustrating that you're not getting anywhere um, in resolving that that problem and getting the person out of hospital and back back home or into the community yeah they're probably the two main things is there a particular type of person that geriatrics suits what sort of character uh, characteristics uh, would it suit um I think Someone who, who enjoys, we, we throw this term around a bit, but holistic care. So looking at um, not just the, the, the medical issues, but the, the, the social issues and the, and the personality issues that a, that a person has and their, yeah. so, and their psychological yeah. um, um, life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it requires a fair bit of patience um, and... Um, and probably uh, just thinking about my colleagues and particularly my mentors, probably pe- people with a, um, uh, I guess, a quieter, gentler type of personality. Um, although as geriatrics grows as, as a profession, uh, there are people with all, all personalities really um, in, in our profession. Yeah. But the, I guess the, the, um, the vanguard of geriatricians... Um, over the last few decades have probably been people at the quieter, yep. quieter personalities, yeah. And just finally, what's involved in the training uh, to be a geriatrician in Australia? Okay, so it's it's done through physician training. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you do your basic training, your, your basic um, training exams and get what we call your first part. And then uh, advanced training in geriatrics um, is a currently a three-year program. Um People are encouraged to um, to spread that training over as, as many different um, areas and facilities as they can, and not just um, not just say Brisbane or the major city centres, but also rural and, and, and regional if possible, um, and vice versa too. So we've had a few geriatricians who've predominantly trained in the regional areas right. rather than um, rather than the, um, the the major city centres, but it's it's good to have a, a mix. And uh, particularly a mix, I think, of different mentors. Yeah. Are there plenty of jobs? Um, there, it, it's getting tighter. Um, the last time I was, the last couple of years, I was involved in re- recruiting at a state level um, in Queensland. Um, there was the the threat of more trainees applying for positions than. Um, than, uh, sorry, more, more trainees applying than there are positions mm. was ever present, but we always seem to manage to, to make them fit. Uh, but that was a few years ago. I, I, I've 
got a feeling that it might have reached the point where it's it saturated and there's a little bit of competition, at least within within Queensland, which is um, why there's probably a bit more pressure to go regional as well as, um, as the major centres. Um, whether that's true of New South Wales and Victoria, um, I, I'd suspect that there's a bit more competition there. John, well. thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Not a problem. Thanks a lot, Todd. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.